Well, take your Bibles and turn back to the Gospel of John. We're going to pick up where we left off last week, and I was just thinking this morning what a blessing it's been to be back in the Gospel of John and just to feel like we've got some traction and we're picking up some speed here and and, uh, making some headway here. But we're going to look at John chapter 12, verses 12 through 19. And here we have the very well-known account of Jesus' triumphal entry. This is how John recorded it, John chapter 12, verse 12. On the next day, the large crowd who had come to the feast, when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, took the branches of the palm trees and went out to meet him and began to shout, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. Jesus, finding a young donkey, sat on it, as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. These things the disciples did not understand at the first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things were written of him, and that they had done these things to him. So the people who were with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to testify about him. For this reason also the people went and met him, because they heard that he had performed this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are not doing any good. Look, the world has gone after him. Father, we thank you for your word and and just how powerful, how practical it is in our everyday lives. And we're here to learn some more from you. And we need your spirit's help to understand this text and or to make application of it in our lives. And so uh, we just come before you humbly dependent upon you and your word and your spirit, and we ask that you would accomplish your purposes in our lives, Lord, and help us to know what you want us to know today so we can be who you want us to be. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, back in the mid-80s, the best decade known to mankind, (laughs) there was a song released by a well-known recording artist entitled Watch the Lamb. Anybody remember that song? Some of us oldies here, oldies but goodies, Watch the Lamb. I see a lot of heads shaking. Okay, you're old. I don't remember that song. Never heard of it. Well, this is a, a song that, that I honestly cry every time I hear it, even though it's an old song. and um, It tells the story of a father and his two sons traveling to Jerusalem for the Passover celebration and along with this little lamb that they're planning to sacrifice on behalf of their family. And the boys were curious about what they would see there, and so their father told them the stories of Abraham and Moses, and, and then he warned them that there would be lots of people there, and they needed to watch the lamb very carefully so it didn't run away. And well, when they reached the city, the father knew something was immediately wrong because there was no joyful worshipers. All he saw was this angry crowd of people crying out, crucify him! He grabbed his boys and he he tried to leave the city, but then all of a sudden, this Roman procession passed by them, leading three criminals to their crucifixion. And he heard someone say, there's Jesus. And he could hardly believe his eyes when he saw this man who had been so badly beaten that he was barely recognizable. Blood poured from his body from the thorns on his brow, and it was running down on the cross that he was carrying, and then he stumbled under the weight of the cross, and he fell down, and a Roman soldier commanded the father to pick it up and carry it for him. And at first, the father tried to resist him, but the soldier reached for his sword, and so he quickly knelt down and took the cross from Jesus, 
And he put it on his shoulders and he started down the street and, and the blood that Jesus had been shedding began to run down his own body. And when they got to Golgotha, he and his boys watched as they drove the nails deep into Jesus' hands and feet. And they listened to him pray, Father, forgive them. Into your hands I commit my spirit. And then he died. And the man stood there for what seemed like an eternity. He lost all sense of time until he felt the little hands of his two sons and heard them weeping. And the oldest boy said, Daddy, Daddy, please forgive us. The lamb you told us to watch ran away. And the father took his sons in his arms and he turned and faced the cross and said, Dear children, watch the lamb. Not just a creative play on words, but a powerful, profound depiction of, I think, what the Bible teaches about the providential timing of Jesus' death on the cross. Jesus died, as we know, during the Passover celebration, but what some people don't realize it was that he died at the same exact time that the Passover lambs were being sacrificed. And this was God's way of showing that Jesus was the ultimate Passover lamb whose blood was shed so that those who trust and obey him would not have to die. In fact, Paul said very specifically in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7, he said this, quote, our Christ, our Passover, also has been sacrificed. And so he calls Christ his Passover, our Passover, that has been sacrificed on our behalf. Now, Josephus, who was the first century Jewish historian, he estimated that over two million people would, would, would be pressed into Jerusalem during the Passover celebration. And according to another man's calculations, that means that over a quarter of a million sheep would be driven into Jerusalem to be slaughtered for the, for the Passover feast. And guess what day all those sheep were customarily driven into the city? You guessed it, the same exact day that Jesus entered Jerusalem on a donkey. We know it as Palm Sunday or the triumphal entry. And I know that uh, this is such a familiar story that most of you have images in your mind of, 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 uh, of this historic event, maybe from sermons that you've heard uh, about this, or maybe from that uh, sweet Sunday school teacher in her flannel graph, right? And she was, had the picture, and, and, and you remember that. But have you ever imagined Jesus riding into Jerusalem on a donkey dodging a bunch of sheep? Because it was likely that was the case. Because so many sheep had to be driven up to the city throughout the entire day that whenever Jesus entered the city, he must have done so surrounded by all these sheep. And I think it's interesting that we live in a world where kings typically love to make grand entrances, right? Surrounded by their royal entourage with all sorts of pomp and circumstance and people heralding their arrival by shouting, the king is coming, the king is coming. And so you would assume that when God came to earth, he would have made the grandest entrance in the history of mankind. But ironically, the king of kings entered the world humbly and quietly as a baby born in the stable, and he entered the city of Jerusalem in, in the same way as a, as a prophet riding on a donkey. 
surrounded by a bunch of screaming people, but also a bunch of bleeding sheep. I think you could really probably rename this as the not-so-triumphal entry. Now, we know this story well because it's recorded in all four of the Gospels, Matthew 21, Mark 11, Luke 19, and here in John 12. And James Montgomery Boyce says this, with the exception of the birth, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, no incident from his life is better known than his triumphal entry into Jerusalem on what has come to be known as Palm Sunday. But then Boyce says this, yet few incidences from his life are more widely misunderstood. I think most people assume that the triumphal entry was when Jesus publicly and formally presented himself as the Messiah to the nation of Israel. That's what we normally think about. Here was the official presentation of himself as the king of Israel. But based on the timing of his entrance into the city, he was presenting himself not as the conquering king who would free the Jews from Roman oppression, but he was presenting himself as their Passover lamb who would free them from their sin. And yet no one understood this. Not even Jesus' own disciples, who had told a number of, who, who, he had, who he had told a number of times that he was going to Jerusalem not to conquer the Romans and to sit on a throne, but to suffer and die on a cross. In fact, look at one instance of this back in Mark chapter 10, just to show you how obtuse or clueless the disciples were even at this point. Mark chapter 10, verse 32, this is the, the, the passage leading up to Mark's account of the triumphal entry in Mark 11. But notice in Mark 10, verse 32, they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking on ahead of them, and they were amazed, and those who followed were fearful. And again, he took the 12 aside and began to tell them what was going to happen to him. So he's like, hey, psst, guys, come over here. I just want to, I just want to remind you of what's going to happen when we get to Jerusalem, okay? All these other people really don't get it, but, but, but you need to get it. And so he said to them, verse 33, Behold, we're going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death, and will hand him over to the Gentiles. They will mock him and spit on him, and scourge him and kill him, and three days later he will rise again. Now, I don't know how Jesus could have been any more specific, any clearer than that. That, guys, I am not going to overthrow Rome. I am not going to set up my kingdom. Okay, I'm going there to be arrested and tried and, and, and crucified, but then I'm going to rise again from the dead. Notice the very next verse. Verse 35, James and John, the two sons of Zebedee, came up to Jesus saying, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? They said to him, Grant that we may sit one on your right and one on your left in your glory. So whatever Jesus just said, it was like, fing, right over their heads, in one ear, out the other. All they're, th- all they're thinking about is, well, Jesus is going to set up his, his kingdom, and, and guess what? We're kind of on the inner circle here, and maybe, maybe one of us can sit on his right and one can sit on his left. That'd be kind of cool. And so it shows that even the disciples at this point were so fixated uh, on this concept of the of this Messiah that Jesus was going to come and, and, and overthrow the Romans. They, they just couldn't even comprehend what he told them. It just didn't register. It didn't compute. 
And then Jesus says to them, you do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism which I am baptized? Of course, he was talking about, are you guys ready to, to die? They said to him, we are able. Again, they're not getting it, right? The cup that I drink, you shall drink and you shall be baptized with the baptism which I am baptized. In other words, you are going to end up dying. But to sit on my right or my left, this is not mine to give, but it is, those, it is for those for whom it's been prepared. Hearing this, the ten began to feel indignant with James and John. And based on what Jesus says next, they weren't upset with James and John because, hey guys, come on, that's really insensitive. Didn't you hear what he just said? He's not going to set up his throne. He's going to die on a cross. He pulls him aside and says, hey guys, I know you're kind of all jockeying for position right now, okay? And you're mad that maybe they beat you to the punch, But he said, you know that those who are recognized as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great men exercise authority over them, but it is not this way among you. Whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. Whoever wishes to be first among you shall be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. And by the way, let me just remind you, let me tell you one more time, to give his life as a ransom for many. So again, it's amazing to me, right, that these disciples, um, it just wasn't connecting yet. And we're going to see that in this passage um, that we're going to look at this morning. Well, you remember from last week, we learned about the dinner party, right, where uh, John and Jesus and the rest of the disciples, they were uh, in the home of Simon the leper in Bethany, and it was kind of a party to celebrate uh, Lazarus's resurrection. And so Mary... Um, really took the focus off Lazarus and put it on Jesus and, and, and poured this uh, perfume on Jesus' feet and wiped it with her hair, and, and the celebration of Lazarus' life turned into a preparation for the Lord's death. And if there was anyone tracking, it was her, right? We said this last week. She had some insight that nobody else had. Why? Because she spent the majority of her life at Jesus' feet, right? So she, she was connected there. And we know that the Sanhedrin had already decided at this point that Jesus had to die. But they didn't want to arrest him or execute him during the Passover. Why? Because they were afraid of the crowds. They were afraid that there there might be a riot that broke out. In fact, Matthew chapter 26 says this specifically. Matthew chapter 26, verses 3 through 5. Listen to what... Matthew says, and the chief priests and the elders of the people were gathered together in the court of the high priest named Caiaphas, and they plotted together to seize Jesus by stealth and kill him. But they were saying, not during the festival, otherwise a riot might occur among the the people. And so they were likely planning to wait until after the feast was over to dispose of Jesus after the crowds had dispersed. And there would be, it would be less likely that there was be any kind of rioting going on. However, despite their wicked schemes and their wicked desires, Jesus was going to die at the precise hour that God had predetermined or predestined in his eternal plan to save the world from sin. There's a couple of verses we like to look at when we talk about God's predestined plan for the crucifixion of Christ. One is Acts 2.23. Peter said in his first sermon at Pentecost, this man, Jesus, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of God this man and put him to death. And then in chapter 4, when 
they were arrested. A couple of the disciples were arrested, um, and they were told they couldn't preach any longer. They began to pray, and this is what they prayed, Acts 4.27, For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. And so while they thought they were in control, right? Uh, no, God was in control, and he was simply using their, their evil for what? For good. And so here's Jesus, back in John chapter 12, not sneaking into Jerusalem sometime during the Passover week under the cover of night like he did in the Feast of the Tabernacles. Remember back in, I think it was John chapter 6, his brother said, hey, you need to go to the Feast of Tabernacles and, and, and show everybody who you are and, and, and take a stand as the Messiah. And it wasn't his hour, right? And so he, he went a few days later and he kind of snuck in and then showed up in the temple and began to teach. But here is Jesus on the very first day of the Passover week riding into Jerusalem through one of the main gates in broad daylight with a huge crowd cheering him on, which, which forced the hand of the religious leaders. Jesus left them no other choice but to act right away. Why? Because it was God's will for Jesus to die during Passover when all of Israel was focused on the blood of that sacrificial lamb that each of them would have to kill to atone for their sins. And so I think that's the emphasis here in John chapter 12 with the timing here. I've just broken up our text here into four sections this morning. We'll see, first of all, the coronated king. Secondly, the completed prophecy. Thirdly, the confused disciples. And then lastly, the concerned Pharisees. Let's look at the coronated king first. And again, the scene shifts here from a private party in Bethany to a public parade in Jerusalem. Verse 12, on the next day, the day after this uh, party for Lazarus here, the large crowd who had come to the feast, when they had heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, took the branches of the palm trees and went out to meet him and began to shout, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And so as I mentioned before, the Passover crowds were enormous as Jewish pilgrims would would pour into Jerusalem from every corner of the Mediterranean world. And so the city was just bursting with people, many of whom had either witnessed Lazarus' resurrection or had been told about it. And so when they heard that Jesus was headed toward Jerusalem, they ran out to meet him. And on their way, they stopped to cut some fronds off of the the date palms that grow in and around Jerusalem, even to this day. And according to the other Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the crowds laid these palm branches down on the road Um, and also along with their coats uh, to make a pathway for Jesus to to walk on. And uh, these palm fronds, these uh, palm branches were significant um, because in the Maccabean period when uh, Simon the Maccabee drove the Syrian forces out of Jerusalem. He was heralded a great hero uh, of Israel, and, and uh, people sang uh, songs about him. They waved palm branches, uh, and that ever since then, the, these palm branches ha- were recognized as a symbol of the Jewish state. In fact, they were even on some of the Jewish coins, but they were also symbols of peace and victory. I thought it was interesting that even in the book of Revelation, Revelation chapter 7, 
um, verse 9, here we see uh, a picture of the tribulation saints, Christians who die during the tribulation. They go to heaven and they're worshiping the Lamb, Jesus Christ, around his throne. After these things I looked and behold a great multitude, multitude which no one could count from every nation and all tribes and peoples and tongues standing before the throne before the Lamb clothed in white robes, and palm branches were in their hands. Apparently, there are some palm branches in heaven, right? they're, They're still symbolic even there. And they cry out with a loud voice saying, Salvation to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And what the tribulation saints will say to Jesus in heaven is very similar to what the crowd said to Jesus when he entered Jerusalem. Notice they cried out, Hosanna, which literally means save us now. Please, please save us. And so they were begging, they were pleading with Jesus to take immediate action and to deliver them from from Roman rule. They they saw him as a a political and military savior, not not a spiritual savior. By the way, this is a direct quote. You probably noticed that, the way it was, uh, maybe the, the font uh, in your Bible changed there. This is a direct quote from Psalm 118, verses 25 to 26. Um, Psalm 113 to 118 are what's called Hallel Psalms, uh, or Messianic Psalms, because they praise the coming of the Messiah, and it was customary for the Jewish pilgrims to sing these psalms or these praise songs as they approached Jerusalem for Passover. And so this crowd saw Jesus, and and it was just very natural for them to break out in song and proclaim him as the Messiah that God had promised to send to deliver them. And they were cheering him on as as he entered Jerusalem. And so it was the miracle of raising Lazarus from the dead that really stirred up this nationalistic fervor and kindled the, the, the messianic expectations. And so everybody was, I mean, it was electric. And at this point, Jesus could very easily have incited a, an insurrection and established himself as the king. But that's not what he was planning to do. And I think his mode of transportation was intended to downplay his arrival. Notice the completed prophecy, verse 14. It says, Jesus, finding a young donkey, sat on it as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. I can't think of anything more anticlimactic than that. (laughs) Here, Here, Jesus is being proclaimed as the king, and then he goes find some some young donkey even the colt of a donkey that he actually had to borrow, right? And uh, the other gospel writers go into detail as to how Jesus acquired the donkey and, hey, go into the city, it'll be tied up here, take it. And if somebody asks you, hey, what are you doing taking my donkey? You say, the master needs it, and they'll say, okay. Um, John doesn't get into those details. He simply mentioned how him riding a donkey fulfilled one of the key Old Testament prophecies about the Messiah, Zechariah 9.9. Again, he quotes it here in verse 15. Daughter of Zion is the name for Jerusalem and, and really representative of Israel as a whole. This is just one of many Old Testament prophecies that Jesus fulfilled, which prove that he was the Messiah. 
But again, the irony here is, is that unlike most conquering kings who would ride into their capital city on a, on a powerful war horse, the king of kings and, and lord of lords rode into Jerusalem on a borrowed donkey. I mean, it kind of is like, kind of kill, wrecking the moment, Jesus, a little bit here, you know? I mean, come on, we're all riled up here, and, and I mean, it would just be perfect. You, you would think the text would say, and he found himself a wild stallion, sat on it, and, right? I mean, that's what, you, that's what they wanted. But he chooses, specifically, he chooses a donkey. And so, instead of, you know, coming in, stomping and snorting, you know, he comes in trotting on this little donkey, you know? And it's like, okay, I'm, I'm excited about this guy, but that looks weird, okay? I don't get that image. One commentator said it this way, that Jesus deliberately demilitarizes their vision and declares the nature of his messianic rule. In other words, he didn't want to be seen as this mighty warrior. He wanted to be seen as a meek, modest prince of peace. Why? Because that was the fulfillment of Scripture. Well, notice the next section, the confused disciples. The confused disciples, verse 16, these things the disciples did not understand at the first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things were written of him and that they had done these things to him. So again, even though the disciples had most likely grew up reading the Old Testament scriptures, they had spent three years uh, listening to Jesus teach them how he was the fulfillment of those scriptures, they still, it says, John is admitting here, they still miss the significance of Jesus entering Jerusalem on a donkey. And, and again, John is humble enough to admit, hey, we were ignorant, we were clueless at that moment. And it wasn't until it says that Jesus was what? Glorified, which I think is a, a word that, that, that encompasses a lot Obviously, the first thing that should come to our mind when Jesus was glorified was when he was what? Resurrected, right? And we know that immediately after his resurrection, he began to touch base with the disciples in various contexts on, an Emmaus, on the Emmaus Road, in the Upper Room, on the Sea of Galilee, and he was filling in the gaps for them, right? He was, um, he was kind of uh, giving them some further instruction and helping them connect the dots. They're like, oh, I get it now. But even then, there were some things that that they still didn't fully grasp. And after he ascended back to heaven and was seated at the right hand of God, uh, he was glorified above all things, right? And then what happened? He sent the Holy Spirit to illuminate them, to help them fully comprehend how he fulfilled all Scripture. I mean, you think about it. Here these guys didn't get it here, and then months, years later, they're writing scripture themselves. What's the secret? The Holy Spirit. <laughs> kind of helps, right? John 14, verse 26, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. Chapter 16, verse 12, I have many more things that, to say to you, but you cannot hear, bear them now. But when he, the Holy Spirit, comes, or the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. So let me just encourage you. You may be someone who uh, is, is, is sitting here, and uh, you don't understand 
a whole lot about the Bible. Um, hang in there, okay? And, and it'll start to make more sense to you over time as you read it, as you study it, as you sit under this teaching of it, uh, and, and as you rely on the Holy Spirit to enlighten you. I mean, you could end up like the disciples, right, who, who didn't start off knowing a whole bunch, right? But eventually they became very knowledgeable in the scriptures and they, they ended up writing the scriptures, writing more scripture and, and turning the world upside down. That could be you. Even if you're a baby Christian, even if you're just new in the faith, even if you really don't know a whole lot about the Bible, man, the Holy Spirit can do that for you. He can do that in you. I also have to say this by way of warning that if when you read the scriptures, I mean, you don't get anything out of it. I mean, you, you read it, you just don't get it. I mean, it's like, whoa, I, I have no clue what this is saying. And, 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 and you, don't, you don't get any of it. None of it seems to apply to your life. That could be an indication that you don't have the Spirit of God in you. That's what you're lacking. It's not like, well, I just, I just, you know, some, I just don't, I'm not a good, whatever, I'm not a good student, I'm not a good reader, I'm not a good whatever, you know, sometimes people make excuses, right, why they don't get anything out of what they read. I'm like, hey, the reason why you're not getting anything out of read is not because you have some, you know, whatever, reading disorder, anything. it's because you don't have the Spirit of God in you. Because I think the Spirit of God can even overcome some of the struggles that we have reading, right? Whatever your issue might be when it comes to reading, and um, the Spirit of God can overcome that. So I want to encourage you to really examine your life to make sure that you do have the Spirit of God. First, uh, First Corinthians chapter 2 talks about the, the natural man cannot understand the things of God because they're spiritually appraised. Well, let's look at the concerned Pharisees. Verse 17, so the people who were with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to testify about him. For this reason also the people went and met him because they heard that he had performed this sign. And so picture this, this, these converging crowds. You've got this crowd coming down from the Mount of Olives, from Bethany, and you've got this crowd coming out of the city. And it's like these two crowds just crash into one another. These two waves of people crash in and they just explode into praise for the coming king. And notice the Pharisees. So the Pharisees, verse 19, said to one another, you see that you're not doing any good. Look, the world has gone after him. So they were looking on with dismay, these Pharisees, they were beside themselves, everything they had done so far to, to try to curb Jesus' influence, to contain his popularity, had backfired, it just, it's completely failed, and, and now they're taking it out on each other. Well, yeah, you tried that, that didn't work, well, yeah, well, you tried, well, that didn't work. And there, now there's infighting amongst the Pharisees, and their worst fears were coming to fruition because everybody in the whole world seemed to be believing in him and going after him, and if something wasn't done right away to quell what appeared to be this in, inevitable, unavoidable uprising, I mean, this had, this had rebellion written all over it, Rome would gonna, was going to intervene and take away their authority, shut down the temple, and pummel the entire nation. And that's what they had said already in, in, in John 11. Remember verse 48, if we let him go on like this, all men will believe in him and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. I think that place 
is probably a reference to their place of authority, but also their place, their temple. The Romans would shut it down, and they would have no place to worship. Well, guess what? That's exactly the state in which Israel is today, that somebody else controls, right, their place, the Temple Mount. There's a, there's a Muslim mosque on that thing, and it's controlled by the Muslims, and so the Jews can't worship in their place. And so what do they do? They get as close as possible to that place by going to the Wailing Wall. In fact, even for the last uh, decade or so, they've been digging tunnels, right, to get as close to the original walls as possible so they can worship God underground, but they feel closer to their place. I think what the Pharisees didn't appreciate at the time was how fickle the crowds really were. And that most of them could be easily swayed to demand that Jesus be crucified once they found out he wasn't the kind of king that they were anticipating. And he had no intention of delivering them from Roman oppression. Well, let's just get rid of this guy then. What use is he to us? And again, that word world, he says, the, the world has gone after him. It may have just been a hyperbole, an exaggeration, but, but I think because it's one of John's favorite words, uh, that he uses often in his gospel to clarify that Jesus didn't just come to die for the nation of Israel, but he came to die for everyone in the world, right, who is lost in their sin and who is living in rebellion against God. And so it's likely that John intended this statement by the Pharisees to be understood uh, as an unwitting prediction of how the gospel would spread through it throughout the entire world. Sort of like when Caiaphas said, yeah, one man needs to die for the nation. Whoa. That was prophetic, even though you didn't realize it, right? Here the, here, the, here the Pharisees now are prophesying, if you will. In fact, the very next verse, notice verse 20, now there were some Greeks among those who were going up to worship at the feast. These then came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida of Galilee, and began to ask him, saying, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. They're like, whoa, where did those guys come from? This is like a Jewish holiday. This is a Jewish celebration. What are the Greeks doing there? What are Gentiles doing there? Well, guess what? They came to check out Jesus. And so right there on the heels, we're seeing how this prophecy is coming true. In my opinion, I think Luke's gospel contains the most interesting perspective on the triumphal entry. I want to invite you just to turn back there, Luke 19. In fact, when I originally studied this years ago and was so struck by something in, in his account that, that instead of calling this the triumphal entry, I titled it the tearful entry. Because as Jesus crested the Mount of Olives, the city of Jerusalem came into full view and, and when that happened, it caused the crowds to burst into praise but it caused Jesus to burst into tears. Notice verse 41. When he approached Jerusalem, he saw the city and wept over it. One of the most memorable sights from our last trip to Israel was going up on the Mount of Olives and looking over the city, and then we began our walk down through the graves, and then our guide took us to this little Catholic church. 
And uh, we didn't know what it was at the time. It's called Dominus Flevit, which in Latin means the Lord wept. And so some Catholics felt like, hey, let's build a, a little chapel to remember this event where somewhere on the slope, right, Jesus was looking at the city and he began to cry. He began to weep. And so it's a very picturesque little chapel and you sit there and they have it facing Jerusalem with this big window at the front. And so you're sitting there in the pews and just imagine sitting there and looking out over the city of Jerusalem. An amazing place just to contemplate that final or that that triumphal entry. Now look at it, it says in Luke, it says that he, he wept. He wept over it. Now we've heard that before. We just heard that, right? Where did we just hear that? In, in La- at Lazarus's tomb, right? Jesus wept. He was brokenhearted for these women who were so brokenhearted, but I think he was also angered at, at sin and death and, and just the consequences of sin and the effects it's had on mankind and the pain and the heartache it, it brings. So this is not the first time, right, that, that Jesus wept. He wept at, the, at Lazarus's tomb. And, and Jesus didn't just get misty-eyed for a moment here on the, on the slope of Mount of Olives. Luke used the strongest possible word for crying. I mean, this is a convulsive sobbing of a soul in agony. Why? Why? When everyone else was praising, they were, everyone was so joyful and, and happy, and Jesus was sad. Like, I never saw that in the flannel graph. Okay? Uh, somehow I missed that. It was like everybody's palm branches and coats and donkey and Jesus in the middle of it all. And it was just one big exciting scene. And, 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 and nobody got me to zero in on the face of Jesus to see tears coming down his face as he rode into Jerusalem. Why? Verse 42. If you had known in this day, even you the things which make for peace, but now they have been hidden from your eyes. Jesus loved the nation of Israel which is representative by its capital city, Jerusalem. And you'll remember in Luke 13, I'm sure this famous statement of Jesus, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together just as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you would not have it. Jesus was like this mother bird saying, Come here, guys, come here. Danger is coming. Come here. Get under here. I want to I protect you. I want to keep you safe. And they're like, Yeah, whatever, Mom. We're out of here. They didn't want anything to do with him. And so as Jesus approached Jerusalem, he knew that they were going to reject him as their king. But what made him so sad, I think, is what that would mean for them in the future. What would that mean for them in the future? Absolute destruction by the hands of the Romans. Notice verse 43, for the days will come upon you when your enemies will throw up a barricade against you and surround you and hem you in on every side and they will level you to the ground and your children within you and they will not leave in in you one stone upon another because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. And so here Jesus foresaw as he was approaching the holy city, He foresaw it in 40 years from now when it was going to be nothing but a pile of rubble. And he very vividly and and accurately foretold the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70. And if you're not familiar with that event, it really got going in around AD 66 when the Jews 
finally got fed up with the cruel oppression of the Roman government, and so they decided to stage a revolt. Uh, They did what they were wanting Jesus to do for them. They did by themselves. And so Rome, as it always did, right, no tolerance whatsoever for any kind of rebellion. They made an example out of Israel for all the other nations of what happens to anyone who rebels against Rome. Josephus recorded that the Romans attacked the holy city, guess when? During Passover celebration. So Roman troops surrounded the city, didn't allow anyone to enter or leave, and after 143 days of siege, they finally broke into the city and just brutally massacred every Jew in sight. Over a million Jews, it says, were slaughtered, and those who survived were taken into captivity. And then they proceeded just to completely, absolutely destroy the city. The walls and the temple just completely leveled. And from a human perspective, you could say, well, Jerusalem was destroyed because they rejected Roman rule, right? But from God's perspective, I think we can safely say that Jerusalem was destroyed because they rejected Christ's rule. Verse 44 says it. Jesus says, because, this is going to happen because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. You didn't realize that God had visited you in the person of Jesus Christ. They missed their golden opportunity to receive Jesus as their Messiah, and and instead they rejected and killed him, and they paid a very high price. And I believe that the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD was a direct, deliberate act of judgment by God for rejecting Jesus Christ. And don't think for a second that that destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70 is just some historical fact. Okay, got it, check, thanks for reminding me of that historical event, right, that's really not relevant to my life right now, sitting here, 2014, Montgomery, Texas. Listen, that event stands as a solemn warning to anyone who rejects Jesus today. Because in the same way that Jerusalem suffered the consequences of rejecting Christ, so will you if you reject Christ. And I think the point that God made in AD 70 still applies 2,000 years later. This is the point. It matters to God how you treat his son. It matters to God how you treat his son. And if you go back to Psalm 2, Psalm 2 is a, a fascinating psalm. And it talks about the coming of of a king that God had appointed. And obviously it's a reference to the coming of Christ. But notice the contrast that God makes here with the kings of the earth. This is Psalm 2, verse 1. Why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. And that's very prophetic of what we're seeing happening, right? Uh, Even amongst the the kings and the rulers of Israel, they were trying to, 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 to take issue against the Lord's anointed and basically get this guy out of here. We don't want anything to do with this guy. But notice God says, he who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. 
Then he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury, saying, But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. There's a clear reference to the Messiah, right? Who is this? Who is this Messiah going to be? I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, You are my who? My son. Today I've begotten you. And then notice how it ends in verse 10. Now therefore, O king, show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Hey, kings, listen up. No, I'm going to warn you here, okay? You need to worship God's king, worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. Do homage to the son. Respect the son that he not become angry and you perish in the way for his wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all who take refuge in him. Now, this is not only a reference to Jesus' first coming, it's also a reference to his, what, second coming. And I think it's very fascinating. I didn't, I, I, I'm familiar with the passage where Jesus returns, right, in, in, in Revelation 19, but I don't think I ever saw it in his context. Revelation 19 Verses 11 to 16 is, is the passage we're all familiar about with Jesus coming back on the horse and right taking over J- Jerusalem. And, but notice what comes before that. This is amazing to me. Four times the multitude in heaven cries out, Hallelujah! Which is the same concept as Psalm 118, the Hallel Psalms, right? Hosanna, save us. Revelation 19, after these things I heard something like a loud voice of great multitude in heaven saying, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God. Verse 3, a second time they said, Hallelujah, her smoke rises up forever and ever and the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who sits on the throne saying, Amen, Hallelujah, that's three. And then verse 5, and a voice came from the throne saying, Give praise to our God, all you his bondservants, you who fear him, the small and the great. Then I heard something like the voice of a great multitude and like the sound of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder saying, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. By the way, that's where um, Handel's Messiah comes from, right? The Hallelujah Chorus. But then notice, just jump over the marriage of the Lamb to verse 11. And I saw heaven open. In other words, you got this praising going on in heaven and and they're worshiping Christ and they're saying, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God. And I saw heaven open, verse 11, and behold, a white horse. Now that's what we're looking for right there. That's what we've been looking for is what's the donkey? I don't get the donkey. I get the white horse. There it is, finally. I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, and he sat on it, and he who sat on it is called faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and wages war. There we go. Now we're talking. He's coming to wage war. His eyes are a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written on him which no one knows except himself. He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. If you don't know how to ride a horse yet, get some lessons, okay? Because you're going to need to know how to do this, all right? And um, 
someone told me after first service, well, the Holy Spirit will teach you how to ride, you know, once you get up there, you know, so. But the point is, we're coming back with him on white horses. This is a, this is a, a, a brilliant picture, right, of, a, of an all-out attack, right, of, of Christ and his, his, his people, his followers coming to Jerusalem, right, to attack the Antichrist and all of the armies of the earth that will raise themselves up against him. Verse 15, from his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, and he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty, and on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, and what is it? King of kings and Lord of lords. So the next time Jesus comes to Jerusalem, it isn't going to be like the first time. He will be healed with hallelujahs, like the first time, but he will not be riding a lowly donkey. He'll be riding a mighty horse, and people will be bowing down and worshiping him as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Are you ready for that day? Because you don't want to be one that is forced to bow. Because right now, today, you have an opportunity This, in some sense, is a day of visitation for you. You've heard the gospel this morning. You've heard the message of Jesus Christ and salvation in him. You have an opportunity today to bow the knee to Jesus as your King of kings and as your Lord of lords. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word and just how practical it is for our souls. And Lord, I pray that you would be gracious this this moment, even right now, Lord, and if there's anyone here who has never truly gotten the gospel, they just haven't got it yet, Lord, that you would open up their minds to understand, that you would grant them repentance and faith, that they would come to know Christ today as their King of kings and Lord of lords. And Lord, I pray that the rest of us would, would live every day, every hour, every second in anticipation of your second coming that we would absolutely 100% believe that it's going to happen and it could happen any moment. And Lord, that we would see the joy of of you coming and, and getting the glory finally from this world that you deserve. And may we pray towards that end. May we share the gospel towards that end. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.